welcome to episode six of Words with Writers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Canadian Authors Association Toronto branch. We are a membership-based organization for writers in all levels, areas, and genres of the writing profession. We are your hosts, Brandy Tanner and Chris Gorman. We have a special treat for all of our lovely listeners today. This is our very first Words with Writers Halloween Spooktacular. Oh, I'm so excited for this one, Chris. On our third episode, Painting a Picture with Words, we featured five of our members reading excerpts from their work. That episode was so popular, we decided to do it again, but this time with a spooky twist for Halloween. So after we go over a few events and contests, you can kick back and indulge the eerie season with five spine-chilling member readings. And as always, we will finish the show with our member news segment, where we take a moment to acknowledge the amazing things our writers are accomplishing right now. Thanks, Brandy. This is going to be so much fun. Uh, And I do have to apologize to everyone listening. I woke up this morning full on cold, it seems like. So we'll muddle through this. It'll sound great. Thank you, Brandy. Uh, But yes, so we're going to keep this brief so we can launch right into the hair-raising tales our members have for you today. It's going to be a busy couple of months for Canadian Authors Toronto, and we've got a few events prepared for you, starting with our regular monthly programming on Thursday, October 29th from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. At this event, Ariane Blackman will present a tarot card themed poetry writing workshop hosted by our very own executive committee member, Pamela Yoon Elkerbout. This virtual workshop will lead participants through writing exercises that will begin with written prompts and progress to tarot card prompts and finish with participants reading the poems that they created. Please join us for this workshop where we will use the enigmatic and fascinating imagery of tarot cards to strip ourselves from our usual ways of being and seeing. We will be releasing the event details soon, complete with instructions on how to RSVP, which can be found on the events section of canadianauthors.org slash Toronto. That one sounds awesome, Chris. We're also presenting two extra programs on Saturday, November 7th, to celebrate Indie Author Day 2020, a special day dedicated to celebrating the contributions and achievements of indie authors. This event brings together local indie authors, writers, and readers for a day of education, networking, workshops, and more. We at Canadian Authors Toronto are excited to be participating as an official host of this year's fifth annual Indie Author Day. From 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be presenting a panel discussion, Journey on Becoming an Indie Author. Canadian Authors Toronto co-president, J.F. Gerard, will host a panel with fellow execs and authors, Ed Seward, Lee Parpart, and my charismatic co-host, Chris Gorman, to examine different paths on becoming an indie author. The panel will cover methods of publishing, including traditional, hybrid, and self-publishing, 
along with their advantages and disadvantages. Other topics will include marketing, getting books into libraries, developing your author platform, and more. That's right, Brandy. I'm looking forward to being a part of that conversation. Following that panel discussion on November 7th, we have CAA member indie author readings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Join in to hear fantastic works presented by CAA Toronto authors with each author reading for about five minutes. Pre-registration is required, so please go to canadianauthors.org toronto events to register and to see full reader bios. I'll definitely be registering for both of those, and I can't wait to hear the informative panel discussion and the imaginative author readings. One last event we will mention is the Canadian Authors Peterborough Branches event on November 20th, a Zoom talk with author Patrick Taylor. From 7.30 to 9.30 p.m., join CAA Peterborough in a virtual conversation with the author of the celebrated Irish Country Doctor novel series, Patrick Taylor's heartwarming and humorous multi-book series. That sounds amazing. Well, Brandy, that does it for the events. So let's mention one popular writing contest before moving into the readings portion of our show. The CBC Short Story Prize is an annual fiction story writing contest open to all citizens and permanent residents of Canada. It has an entry fee of $25 and gives a chance to win a first prize of $6,000. You also get your story published on CBC Books and attend a two-week writing residency at the Banff Centre for the Arts and Creativity. Four finalists will each receive $1,000 and have their short story published on CBC Books. You can submit original, unpublished fiction that is up to 2,500 words by the deadline of October 31st, 2020. Thanks, Chris. I've wanted to submit my work to the CBC Short Story Prize for ages now. So who knows, maybe this year is the year I actually do it. Well, that wraps up the events and contests. So it's time for our members to read their eerie works. Settle in, grab your witch's brew, and prepare to be spooked. Be spooked. First up, help us welcome A.B. Neely to the show, reading Chapter 3 from her new novel, Kalala. A.B. Neely is a writer, playwright, philosopher, astrologer, and magician. Her publications include novels for children, articles, short stories, and blogs. Her novel for young adults, Kalala, will be published around December 1st by Prometea Press. Her play, The Seer, has been performed at the Toronto Queer Festival and Magicians selected for Big Ideas Festival. She is a member of the Canadian Authors Association. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Anna. 
It's coming out December 1st, right? I've been eagerly awaiting it since I heard you read back in April, I think, or March. Oh, thank you, Chris. That's so nice of you. Thank you, Brandy and Chris. So today I'm going to read the fragment of my new novel, Kalala. This is the story of the novel. Reaching the coast of Spain as an illegal immigrant is the least of Kalala's problems. The boat could fail, the coast guards could catch her and send her back to Kinshasa, where Claudia's family will kill her the moment she steps onto the city. But there are worse things under the sky. The black has followed her all the way from Congo, its green tentacles extending to her heart, threatening her life and her mother's, two years running away for nothing. The exorcism didn't work. So I'm going to read chapter three. Most of Mama Velvey's clients came during weekdays, so she closed on Sundays, which is why we had gathered at the empty restaurant and we were getting bored. I have an idea, Majifa said. Why don't we play Ouija? What? I said. That's insane. Look what happened to those girls in Supernatural. I don't want to be hunted by a spirit. Anyway, we don't have a Ouija board. Nah, those are silly stories, Majifa said. I've done it myself. It's not dangerous. You just talk with dead people, no demons or anything. Just honest, good, dead people. We talk with dead people all the time, Bai said. My mother has an altar dedicated to her late first husband and to her grandparents. She talks with them often. You see, Majifa said, it's something normal, and we don't need a Ouija board, we can build our own. If Mama Belvi catches us, she will cut my ears short, I said. You told us Mama Belvi would be out all day with the market and stuff, Spy said. It'd be fun, Claudia added and smiled. I had a weakness for Claudia. She never asked for anything, but when she wanted something, I couldn't say no. Okay, let's do it. What do we need? Yes, Ayifa said. It's easy. All we need is a piece of paper, a pen, and a water glass without water. I went to the kitchen. I was excited. This is what happens when you watch too much Supernatural. You wanted to do weird things like this to see if it worked. Maybe something went wrong. Some would come to rescue us. Uh, here, I placed the items on the table. What do we do? Majifa took the paper and cut it into small squares. Who writes the most beautifully? Claudia, by said, and we all agreed. My handwriting was a mess. Claudia. Write the alphabet, one letter on each piece of paper. Also write yes and no. Claudia obeyed. We all watched her in silence while the little squares were filled in. It was almost a miracle how beautifully she could write. Majifa arranged all the pieces around the table where we sat. The letters were set in alphabetical order in a circle with the yes and no in the center on either side of the glass. The glass was upside down. Now we all put our index finger on the glass. We did as instructed. 
She was the general and we could only obey. We are opening a door to the world of the spirits, Maidifa said. If there is any spirit that wants to communicate with us, come to the glass and talk to us. Is there anybody there? The glass moved. Yes. I sighed and grabbed the side of the table as if it was my salvation. My nails pinned the wood. I shouldn't have done this. This was wrong. Who are you? The glass moved. Y O U R B U M. Your bum? Selfie, I said. She was laughing like crazy. This is serious. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Take your finger off of my glass, Magifa said. No, I will be a good woman, I promise. Okay, Magifa said. No jokes anymore. No jokes. <laughs> Safi laughed and we all joined in. It's moving, is it you, Safi? Not me now, she lifted her finger. K-A-L-A-L-A, Kalala. Do you have a message for Kalala? Majifa asked. Yes. My skin broke out in goosebumps. Y-O-U-A-R-E-M-I-N-E. You are mine, Majifa read aloud. I'm not anybody's, I said. Stop it, Safi. It's not me, I swear it. The glass started to move quickly around the world. No. What's going on? I said. No, 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 no. The glass flew, flew off the table and exploded in the air. We screamed and ran out of the house. What happened back there? I said, panting. I don't know, Majifa said. I've never seen anything like this. I mean, a glass can't do that. Did you see it? We all nodded. We have to clean up the mess. I'm not going there, Claudia said. Can't we just wait, Majifa said. Chickens! I went inside. I hoped they would follow me, but nobody did. The floor was covered with tiny glass fragments. I took a piece of paper and the broom and tried to pick it all up. Ouch! The piece had pricked my finger. There was a drop of a black substance on it. It couldn't be my blood. It was sticky and I felt an immediate revolution. It moved along like a black worm trying to eat my flesh. I ran to the tub where I tried to rinse it off. I used lots of dish soap and water. Some of it disappeared down the drain there was still some that looked like a tattoo. It moved under the skin until it had the form of a tree before it disappeared, swallowed by the flesh. I had to suppress my need to vomit, to think of that black sting crawling inside me. It couldn't be real. It was just a hallucination. Maybe I was dreaming. Hey, Kalala, are you okay? Majifa asked from the threshold. I thought you were scared. Well, we are, but you didn't come back, so I decided to check if everything's all right. Yes, I guess, I just... 
The skin on my finger was red. I had been rubbing it hard with the scrubber. I closed my hand to hide the abraded skin. Can you help me with the rest of the broken glass? I think I got some in my finger. I can't finish cleaning. Sure, let me tell the others. She went outside. Hey guys, enough of this nonsense. Majifa said, Kalala is okay, but we need to clean up our mess. My friends care for me after all. I smiled. They returned and in a few minutes, there was no sign of our little adventure. Even my finger looked normal. I wished I had only imagined it. I wished. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so, so much, guys. Thank you. And thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you. I'm looking forward to listen to all the spooky stories. Next up, we have J.F. Garrard reading her short story, The Blue Sun. J.F. Garrard is the founder of Dark Helix Press, deputy editor for Rice Paper Magazine, and an assistant editor for Amazing Stories Magazine. She is an editor and writer of speculative fiction and nonfiction. Her contributions to business, diversity, and health subjects have been published in Entrepreneur, Huffington Post, Moneyish, Monster.com, Woman's Health, and Cosmopolitan, among others. Her latest stories can be found in The Brave New Girls, Adventures of Gales and Gizmos, Blood is Thicker, and the We Shall Be Monsters Frankenstein anthologies. Her story, The Blue Sun, is a winner of the Chinilo Short Story Contest for August 2020. Welcome, J.F. Gerard. Wonderful to have you on today. Uh, so you're going to read an excerpt from your short story. Yeah, so I'm going to read The Blue Sun. So this is the one that I sent into the Chinillo monthly contest. It's sort of like a horror fantasy. It's a little bit gory, which I think is perfect for Halloween. So what we're looking for. <laughs> yeah, we can't yeah, wait. True. Okay. Hopefully it'll be a scary episode. <laughs> <laughs> the Blue Sun by J.F. Garan. Ah, please help me. The earth-shattering, savage shouts of a man's desperate plea for help filled the air before the sounds of bones breaking and snapping occurred. Then silence settled into the darkness. Cammie stared out at the distant lights on the horizon of the harbor and sipped on her tea delicately, as if it were in China and not a standard coffee shop paper cup with one pinky finger in the air. Wisps of shoulder-length curly brown hair framed her gold eyes sunken into an expressionless face. Black leather gloves lay beside her on the bench, which was covered with graffiti and gum. The wind ruffled her black lace dress and blew down the lace on top of her hat covering her face. Her companion, a flickering streetlight, shone down on her while moving slightly in the boisterous weather. Near downtown Eastside, the poorest of all Vancouver neighborhoods, the waterfront area was a dire place with run-down sidewalks, cracked patches of grassy ground, and used silver drug needles scattered everywhere. Her late husband, Sam, an oceanographer, used to frequently visit this waterfront to collect samples for the Ocean Pollution Research Program for the Vancouver Aquarium. Cammie's heart had shattered into a million pieces when she received news that he had fallen unconscious during a dive in the Pacific Ocean and had drowned. 
The many things he had promised her as a husband went unfulfilled. Children, growing old gracefully and dying together. At the funeral, Sam's shipmates from that dive gave her a box of seashells, corals, and other random things he had been collecting for her to incorporate into her large canvases of ocean art. KK, are we done? Cammy tossed the empty paper cup into the overflowing trash bin next to the bench and put on her black gloves. Instead of an, of an answer, there was a loud burp and a vulgar slithering noise. Cammy wrinkled her nose and sighed. Fate had dealt her this hand and she was trying her best to be a good mother. Shortly before Sam's death, they had gone through the IVF process, but the news of the implantation failing came after the funeral. The blow of a dead husband and dead embryos destroyed any hope she had for a living. She had been making a list of things to do before her suicide plans of drinking poison Earl Grey tea with McVitie's milk chocolate digestives when her box of seashells from Sam moved and fell off the shelf. She had screamed when she saw a tiny blue octopus waving its tiny arms and legs at her. Serendipitously, one of Sam's books fell off the shelf at the same time, with its pages showing a large octopus engulfing a ship with screaming sailors entitled The Kraken. Picking up the octopus, she moved it into one of the smaller aquariums in the house, which had a few small goldfishes. After researching what to feed an octopus, she left the house to buy live shrimp and snails at the pet store. Over time, the octopus got bigger and bigger with more demands for live critters as a mean of nourishment. Shrimp and snails were soon not enough, so Cammy started buying rats and mice. If for the fact that KK was not so affectionate towards her, she would have fried him up for a meal a long time ago. The blue octopus kept her company when she hit burst Christmases, Valentine's, Easter, Summer, and all other milestones after Sam's death. Outgrowing the aquarium, KK slept in bed with her, wrapping a tentacle around her arm protectively and waking her up every morning when the sun rose. During the day, he would hide under her bed when she went to work, and at night they ate popcorn together and watched television. KK would make snorting noises when she laughed at comedic television shows and would fall asleep during romantic comedies. They played hide-and-seek inside when it rained outside and built tall towers with blocks to knock down. She loved him so much that she even forgave him after she discovered that he ate her cat. The cat had feline immunodeficiency virus, cat AIDS, and he saved me from vet fees, she reasoned to herself. Acknowledging that he had a voracious appetite, they started a new habit of late-night walks around the neighborhood to hunt for his dinner, consisting of stray dogs or cats. In the wee hours of the morning, they were in a park near Portside, when a scruffy young man decided to rob her of her tiny wristless purse, which only contained $20 in her cell phone. KK was the size of a small bear at this point, so she had bought a custom-made iron bassinet stroller to bring him out on walks to hide him from prying eyes. His squishy, boneless, invertebrate body was curled up under blankets, with his dark eyes peering out curiously when the crime occurred. Squealing at the blood, the Robert had drawn when he cut her hand with a knife, she shakily handed over her belongings under the flickering streetlights. Maybe it was the fear in her eyes, or the pheromones released from the frightening incident, which caused KK to dart out of the stroller and quickly latch onto the robber's legs. There was a scream and a crunching noise when KK used his strong arms to break the boy's legs before using his beak to deliver a paralyzing bite with poison. Stop! He's not food! He... Cammy was flustered, angry, horrified, confused, and proud of KK all at the same time. Anyhow, let me take my cell phone and money first before you eat him. KK's dark eyes did not waver when he moved to the side to let her take her belongings from the boy who was paralyzed. 
The robber's nose had hit the ground hard when his body fell and his blood was splattered on the grass. Her hand was still bleeding, and the pain of her parted flesh made her grit her teeth. She jumped back when the robber's body moved slightly, and his eyes begged her for mercy. She thought for a moment about letting the robber go. But then how will she explain KK's existence to the authorities who might take him away from her? She could not risk losing KK to save a criminal who had hurt her. She knew what would happen next, and turned her back on the boy. Typically for every meal, KK would stun his prey, gobble them up, and then digest them slowly over the course of a few days. Tonight was no exception, and after the boy disappeared into his mouth, KK clambered back into the stroller, curled up into a ball, and closed his eyes for a long rest. The next few days were full of sleepless nights. Cammy kept thinking about the droplets of blood on the grass from the robber's nose. Other than that, there wasn't much evidence to loudly announce that there had been a crime scene. It was worrisome that KK had moved on from dogs and cats to humans. Despite her fears, there was nothing listed in the newspapers, television, or social media about a missing person. Thus, a new ritual began in which Cammie would walk around dressed in dark clothing with her iron bassinet into areas frequented by the homeless and the lost in the wee hours of the night. She began to dress as the creepy mother from her favorite movie, Crimson Peak, where she had taken on the role of a dedicated parent bringing death to anyone she would meet that night. She had prepped KK that if any authorities were to catch them, he should bite and eat her, then make a run for the ocean. Every time she gave him these instructions, he would blink and stare blankly, making her wonder if he understood her at all. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was awesome. <laughs> it's a great strategy. Now joining us is K.V. Skeen with her poem, Third Person Singular, which previously appeared in the journal, number 37, 2012, in the UK, and appeared in K.V.'s collection, Unoriginal Sins. This work draws on the 1899 poem, Anti-Ganish, by William Hughes Mearns. K.V. Skeen's work has appeared in Canada, UK, U.S., Ireland, India, Australia, Austria, Cuba, and China, most recently in Freefall in Canada, the Shanghai Literary Review in China, Tower in Canada, and Vallum in Canada. A winner in the 2018 Urbace Prize Contest, her latest collection, Unoriginal Sins, was published that year by Urbace Press. Also a winner in the 2018 Cinnamon Press Pamphlet Contest in the UK. Her chapbook, The Love Life of Bus Shelters, appeared in 2019. So here to read for us is K.V. Skeen. I did not, when I wrote the poem, uh, include any of the details about the original Antigonish poem by Mertz because the whole thing was uh, written about 1899 and it wasn't published till about 1922 and it was for some sort of stage play and it was, was something that people used to make uh, references to you know yesterday upon the stair I met a man who wasn't there he wasn't there again today I wish I wish he'd go away and it goes on and on and on about uh, regarding that and there was always people making reference to you, know, well, the little man who wasn't there. And it was a reference, I gather, to some sort of 
haunted house somewhere around the area that was reported to have this man wandering around, maybe murdered or whatever, you know, it was always some sort of story about a haunted house. Anyway, that's what he wrote it about. And I just left it as my take on it. Third person singular. This was a home before it all came apart. This ungainly house backed in on itself. Blind windows rejecting all curious faces. Belongs to no one now and sits subdued by overgrown squalor and the shock of survival. Be careful with whomever you love. Be obsessive about emails and text messages. I used to believe we could become more than strangers, surrounded by an unfamiliar past. Out of memory, a clock chimes and I listen for soft footsteps on a steep staircase and know no one will enter without knocking. No one else, that is. Be certain you want what you want. Be circumspect around stray children and cats. Although, as in Mern's Antigonish, we anticipated hauntings upstairs and down. Not that dreadful coldness. Not that. And I swear I saw someone. Could have been anyone there and not there. Be anxious whenever alone. Be thankful for long life bulbs and torches. Possibly another deniable lover, probably a partner out of an unpardonable past. You want to remain nameless. Caught between the unsaid and the unsayable, I ask for nothing. He, she, it didn't cast a shadow. Be watchful before you ask why. Be prepared for ambiguous omissions. Of course I alarmed every window and door, mousetrap basement and attic, policed the review with eyes wide opened of all possible invasive tactics and exit strategies. He wasn't there again today. Be overcautious however you proceed. Beware of guns. Excellent. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much, Deb. <laughs> Thanks. You have a great thank you day. For, thank you for Bye. joining us. And now, put your hands together for Daniel Bryant, sharing an excerpt from his book, Rerouted. Daniel Bryant was born in Montreal and grew up in the small town of Aurora, Ontario. He graduated from York University with an honors BA in English literature and received the Timothy Finley William Whitehead Scholarship to attend the Humber School for Writers Correspondence Program. He has mentored with Paul Quarrington and Will Ferguson. Currently, he works at Canada Post as a letter carrier and lives in Toronto with his family. Rerouted is his first published book, a collection of short stories where myth, mirth, and mayhem are never far away. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Oh, thanks for having me aboard. So I will read from the first story in this series. It's called Dead Walk. And it's, uh, I'll do the setup. It's a, a few characters who are exploring 
an abandoned tannery. Some of the characters are looking around for a misdelivered package from Canada Post, funny enough. And the other ones are there for a different purpose, unbeknownst to the other ones. They're there to check out a mystery that may involve murder, or at the very least, the fountain of youth. So I'll begin. Sophie, this must, this must be the tunnel Lester was talking about. Joel pointed to a large berm that snaked out from underneath a crumbled building. Its mouth agape in front of them. Maybe we should all go in and check this place out while we're standing here. T together as a group, Joel's voice trembled. Sophie knew the reason for his fear. The others did not. I don't know, Matt, answered. We still haven't found that door where I left the package at. I agree with Matt, Benny said. Let's just find that package and get the hell out of here. My boss is freaking. He's texting me every 20 seconds for another update. Sophie was already well into the tunnel by the time Benny finished talking. Joel could only follow. The other two remained at the entrance, arguing about which direction to go in next to find the package. Slow down, Sophie, Joel hissed. He was afraid to shout, expecting to stumble upon another murder scene or disturb the ghosts of crimes past. Sophie did not slow down. It was as if she was being sucked into the darkness. Joel observed the curving walls of the tunnel and the glowing plants. It was as Lester had noted, except in Joel's mind, the prosaic observations of his supervisor were transforming into something oddly poetic. The large gray stones bricked in perfect arches were held together with the weight of their own collusion. Bioluminescence creeped about, casting light and shadow, swallowing up truth. Or something like that. Poetry wasn't Joel's forte. Sophie, Joel called out so softly as he stepped into a cavernous room filled with broken tanning drums and shimmering pools of water. Sophie was by one of the smaller pools. Check this out, Sophie nudged a broken chunk of metal into the pool with her foot. The chunk, the size of a scone, skimmed across the surface for a few feet, then slowly melted, spreading slowly across the surface like butter on a warm skillet. That's sort of like a pool of mercury, but with extra melty powers. Do you think that's the pool that Ava used? Joel asked. I don't know, maybe. Sophie moved to a slightly larger pool and dropped a chunk of metal in. The water splashed up into her face. Sophie screeched and tried to rub the moisture off with her hands. Instead, it spread into a very fine film across her face and eyelids. You know, this doesn't feel half bad. Sophie started patting it dry. The liquid glowed as it hardened into a silver mask. Oh my God, Sophie! Joel tried to peel it off, but Sophie smacked his hand away. Her lips hardened into a sexy half smile. Joel heard Matt and Benny running down the tunnel towards him, but his attention turned to the small pool. Air bubbles popped up to the surface, small waves undulated to the edges. Each disturbance carried snatches of soft singing, a female voice amplified within the liquid. The singing stopped. Matt and Benny stumbled into the cavern as the surface frothed. Joel grabbed Sophie by the hand and guided her back towards the tunnel. Lordy, there's something bobbing up, Matt shouted. A body floated to the surface. Coral lips, alabaster cheeks, breasts, and pelvis thrust up to the dark. 
Joel screamed. Sophie screamed and whirled around in blind terror. Matt screamed and edged towards the exit. Benny screamed and angled his iPhone for a selfie with the body clearly visible in the background. Jesus, can't a lady get some privacy around here without a bunch of gawkers barging in, the body said. Jillian? Joel recognized the voice, but not the body. Awesome job. Thank you so much. So good, Daniel. Thank you. Yeah, it sounded really great. Oh, thank you very much, Chris and Brandy. Our last reading of the day is from Canadian Authors Toronto member Barbara Wade Rose. She's shared a clip of her audiobook version of The Priest, The Witch, and The Poltergeist, as narrated by Jeremy Domingo. Barbara Wade Rose is a Toronto author and award-winning journalist. The book The Priest, The Witch, and The Poltergeist, available now as an audiobook on audible.ca and as a print book on Amazon.com, was praised by the Toronto Star as a fascinating read and has been chosen as a Tailflix top pick for its discovery competition. Visit BarbaraWadeRose.com for more details. The next day, Father Leroux walked each floor of the parsonage while consulting a leather-bound book, muttering, A stop here, or here we repeat, while Gustave noted down whatever he said with a stub of a lead pencil. Laria followed them. As they walked, the poltergeist awakened, and a guttural <laughs> began to rumble from behind the walls. Is that it? Leroux halted and turned to Laria, his eyes wide. Laria nodded and rubbed the back of his neck. The poltergeist's impression upon Leroux made him feel vindicated and a little smug. The passed them on the stairs and hovered on the landing. only, Laria said, and walked down through the sound. As Leroux followed, the noises grew louder, and he flinched. Maybe it wants to make you leave, commented Bunel, eating an apple and watching from the foyer. When they returned to the main floor, smoke and ash from the fireplaces was billowing onto the hearths, sucking back up the chimneys, out, then in. Gustave began to cough. Laria noticed that under his cossack, Leroux's shoulders shook slightly. They're doing that because the carbon in the chimney smoke is a resistor to any electrical current the poltergeist might emit, Bunel said confidently. That's what the seigneur says. Leroux wrinkled his nose. It is not carbon, but the devil's sulfur. Boys, open the windows. That night, Leroux asked Madame Charvet for wax for his ears and retired to Laria's room. Laria drank a few glasses of port and settled himself onto the sofa in the parlor. 
he watched the flickering movement of the flames light the portraits of David and Goliath and Judith and Holofernes. They flickered along the walls of the parlor as the fire continued its rhythmic breathing. Laria closed his eyes and let his mind revert to its favorite subject, the witch. The witch. With his dark eyes and secret smile, the witch. Torel Felix conjured this nip-rap, rap-sap house rack with tip-taps. He had dip-dap discord, preaching claptrap behind the cul-de-sac. Now the house smacked bric-a-brac, racked bedlam, cracked clatter. Larias started awake. The fire was out and the room was dark. He said, Enough! And pushed his head into the sofa cushions. Dear Lord, he groaned. Cease this noise that your servant may get some sleep. He must have dozed, because he thought he saw vines and olive trees from the Garden of Gethsemane growing upwards from the pillars of the mantle while he was looking for where Jesus must also lay awake. All around them were carpenters, carpenters everywhere, hammering. At dawn, Madame Chavet found him, his head jammed between the seat cushions, drooling in his sleep. Father, she said. Father Leroux says it is time for morning prayers. Later, Alex pried the crucifixes off the walls and laid them carefully in the silverware chest, which he and Bunel carried to the stable. Lock it securely, Father Leroux called after them. We don't know what the spirit may try to do. Right. Well, those were some awesome readings. Thank you so much to our members who joined us today to share their words with all of our wonderful listeners. What did you think, Chris? Are you shaking in your boots from all the scary stories we heard today? Absolutely, Brandy. I'm, uh, I'm glad I'm not home alone tonight. <laughs> so, Brandy, now is the time that we're going to finish things up with our member news announcements. Michael Newman's debut historical fiction novel, Between These Walls, received a sterling book review with four out of four A's from Book Life Reviews, and American book reviewer Booktrib has published a story on his novel and its background. Mr. Newman is also collaborating with a BC screenwriter to bring a screen adaptation of the novel to the TV screen in a six-part series. Cool, congratulations, Michael. Susanna Molanolo's poem, I, Hummingbird, has received an acceptance from Contemporary Verse 2, the Canadian Journal of Poetry and Critical Writing, also known as CV2. Interesting fact here, Susanna first submitted poetry to the journal back in 2003 and has held on to the paper rejection because it contains such constructive and encouraging feedback. Although it's taken 17 years, Susanna is over the moon to receive an acceptance from CV2, and we're over the moon for her. 
Absolutely. Congratulations, Susanna. And that little bit of really exciting news brings us to the end of our sixth episode of Words with Writers podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we will be back with you again on November 21st. If any of you, our beloved listeners, have an accomplishment or upcoming publication announcement, or if you want to be featured on the podcast, please email Brandy at tomembership at canadianauthors.org. And please feel free to send us comments or suggestions about the show. We love to hear from you. Thank you for listening, everyone. And happy, happy Halloween. Halloween.